0: Well, good morning, church. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving holiday. We did as a family. We were grateful to have some time together. We uh, spent last week, most of it, in Angel Fire, New Mexico. I left here last Sunday driving that way, and um, we had a snowstorm in Angel Fire, so I had to stop and spend the night in Dumas, Texas, (laughs) and uh, so... um, So I've done that, I don't have to do that again. So uh, anyway, um, but we made our way there and a lot of you have asked about our daughter. She wasn't able to join us. She had another medical procedure uh, while we were there. But the good news is uh, the tests they ran on her were all clear and there's no more cancer there as best we know. So thank you And your prayers. Made for a wonderful Thanksgiving for us, I can promise you that. And uh, you know Thanksgiving weekend, you get to it, and there's all these rivalry games. <clears throat> and I'm so grateful my Rangers won the World Series. I just kind of <laughs> living in that right there. and uh, I heard that, young let trust me, Melissa I've already, I've, already, I've already been encountered this morning from uh, the people on the dark side. Um, <laughs> anyway, but all that to say, today we bring our conversation about missions to a conclusion. Uh, Obviously here, just for the missions month emphasis, y'all know that we never bring a missions conversation to a conclusion at First Baptist Arlington. It's just the ongoing reality of who we are. But for missions month, uh, this will be the last message in that particular series. Our theme for missions month has been religion. Why does it matter? And uh, so we'll bring that conversation to a close and then next Sunday morning, we begin the season of Advent. And so really looking forward to sharing the Advent season with you as a church family. We have some really special things planned. I think it's gonna be a great time for us. So last Sunday morning I talked about uh, sacred shepherds. And today I want us to talk about how sacred shepherds turn into sacred sharers. And I wanna use this text in John 21 this morning. Y'all remember we talked a little bit about this last week. When you read john 's Gospel, if you look at John twenty, you get to verses thirty and thirty one and it almost sounds like the end of the story, it's like a conclusion, if you will. But then you have this epilogue john twenty one where John tells two very important stories that are very beneficial for the church and in these two stories, John paints a picture for us. You know John is a thoughtful theologian in in how he shares the story of Jesus. And so you have to really be paying attention when you read John's gospel. And it'd be my contention that John 21 helps us understand the two callings of the church, the mission of the church. One of them has to do with shepherding the people of God. That was last Sunday. Today's message or today's story has to do with evangelism, the apostolic mission of the church, if you will. And so I'm grateful that John chose to include these stories in this epilogue to his gospel. So if you, ever, if you have your copy of the New Testament, look with me at John 21. It's our custom in our church to stand and honor the Lord Jesus whenever the gospel is read. So I invite you to stand if you're able and hear this reading from the gospel Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, "'Friends, haven't you any fish?' "'No,' they answered. "'He said, "'Throw your net on the right side of the boat "'and you'll find some.' "'When they did, they were unable to haul the net in "'because of the large number of fish. "'Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It's the Lord.' "'As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, "'It's the Lord,' he wrapped his outer garment around him "'for he had taken it off and he jumped in the water. "'The other disciples followed in the boat, "'towing the net full of fish, "'for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards.' When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thank you. Maybe may be seated. I want to begin our conversation this morning with just a word about context as we continue our conversation, just to remind us of where we are in this conversation. Religion continues to be a vital part of our reality. And we know that religions are rooted in our beliefs, that then lead to behaviors that promote or facilitate belonging. And we've talked about this already. That whenever sociologists study religion, they do it along the lines of those three categories: belief, behavior, belonging. And what's fascinating is there are those who thought um, began who began writing in the postmodern era that our world was becoming more secular. Less religious. Well, even though in the West where we live, it may feel that way a little bit, but the truth is religion is not waning across the world. Religion is actually thriving and growing. Religion continues to be incredibly successful and has a grip on humanity. If you look at our world today, there's about eight billion people in the world. And as best we can tell, somewhere around 7.8 to 7.9 million of them are involved in some kind of religion. As a matter of fact, prognosticators missed this uh, years ago, but when they look at a forecast of how populations were growing, India now is the largest population or populous uh, nation in the world, and it is one of the most religious nations in the world. Um, those who live in India, over 99% of them are religious people. And other religions are growing across the world as well. So in other words, religion is here to stay. It has a grip on humanity. What about our context? What, what is the religious climate like in Arlington, Texas? Because that's where we live. Well, here's what i tell you about best we know about Arlington, Texas. First of all, um, In our community, our community has become increasingly pluralistic. In other words, the world has come to Arlington, Texas. Y'all do know that, right? Arlington, Texas. Some of you grew up here and lived here your whole life, and it has changed drastically. Arlington is now a very pluralistic society, So therefore, we have representatives of the major world religions right here in Arlington. Uh, We have Muslims and a growing Muslim population in Arlington, Hindus, Buddhists. We have a small population of Jews in Arlington. As a matter of fact, we have a small messianic synagogue in Arlington. As a matter of fact, this last week while I was away in New Mexico, that messianic synagogue was vandalized in our community. Someone painted a swastika on the door of that synagogue. I have been texting some with the rabbi to tell him that we will stand with him against that kind of prejudice in this community. But it's a pluralistic culture, and we have all kinds of religions represented now in our community. But when it comes to the Christian population, people that are more connected to the church, if you will, you have groups of people. They're in your neighborhoods. They go to school with you. They work with you. For example, you have people who are very active in their local church here in Arlington. True? Do y'all know anybody who goes to church in Arlington? Of course you do. You play ball with them. You work with them. You go to school with them. You have Christians who are actively involved in your churches. You have some people who are churched people they're just not very active in their local church. But they are a part of the church. And if you were to ask them, are you a part of a church, they would tell you yes. Now, their church might be surprised to hear that answer. Um, <laughs> we have some of those, but, um, but they're still churched people. Then you have a whole group of people that we're just now discovering. They're the de-churched population. And we have people in Arlington who used to go to church. Adults, who used to be involved in a local congregation, but for a number of reasons, the research tells us, they're just no longer involved. What's fascinating about the group that's not active, the group that's de-churched, they still have their belief system in place, though. It's fascinating. They still believe the same things. And so that means they are people who would receive conversations about being invited back to church, And then you have another group of people in Arlington, and they're the unchurched people. We have a number of folks, and there are different layers of them. Some of them are closer to the church than others, based upon their background, their heritage, their family systems. But many of them are just unchurched. And so that's our context. Now, when you think about that, let me remind you of our core commitment, which we have as a Christian family. Um, A core commitment of the Christian faith is this. The gospel is good news, and it's to be shared with the entire world. We believe that at our church. In other words, underneath all of our missiology, in other words, our missiological strategy, impetus, everything we do in missions is rooted in this core commitment and grows from it. So we believe, as Christians, that the God of the Bible created everything that is, and that he is the only God there is. And we believe he has revealed himself through his word. And we believe that God created human beings uniquely. And that every human being has this gift of the image of God in us. And we all have the privilege and the responsibility of reflecting the glory of God in his world. But as Christians, we also believe that human beings are flawed. We're broken because we're sinful people. The Bible tells us that human beings rebelled against God. And when that happened... We then, as humans, we became separated from the purposes to which God, for which God designed us. We became separated from each other, and we became separated from our role in life. And because of that, there are consequences of that brokenness. And you look all around us today, and we have evidence of the sinfulness of humanity. And we believe that, that human beings are unable to overcome that sinfulness on their own. But we also believe there's good news in the Bible and that good news is that God has chosen to answer our brokenness and he chose Abraham. Abraham's family and God said to Abraham, through you, through your family, I'm gonna bless all the families of the world. And so when we read our Old Testament, it's the story of Abraham's family and how God chose to bless the world through them. Now when you read the Old Testament, it's an honest book. So we see the shortcomings, the failures, Uh, where the people of God fall short in the role they're supposed to play. But nevertheless, there was always a remnant who was stewarding the promise of God and shepherding it. And then God began to speak to those people to let them know he was expanding this message and this opportunity for the whole world. And so he was going to send a Messiah who would not just be a Messiah for Israel, but he'd be the Savior of the world. And so we believe that Jesus is that person. He's the Messiah, and he's the Savior of the whole world. And we believe he's actually God in the flesh and the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament. And he's God's provision for redemption. And we believe that in order for you to experience life as it's intended to be lived, you have to accept that message and believe that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for your sin and he was resurrected from the dead by God and one day will return and make everything right. And that message to us is a message of good news because we believe Jesus offers forgiveness, restoration to your purpose in life. He offers reconciliation between you and God. He brings hope into your heart and also gives you the gift of eternal life and he's the only one who can do that. Now that is our core commitment. That's the message that we take to Arlington, that we take to Africa, we take to Europe, We take it to the border, we take it anywhere we go because that is our core message. Now with that said, let's look at this story, the catch. What a remarkable story. Here's my contention about the first part of John 21. I believe this miraculous catch of fish actually serves as a parable for the evangelistic calling of the church. I believe it's a real story that actually happened but it's a story that points beyond itself. And that's how New Testament theologians have interpreted ever since it was shared and communicated. So look back with me if you still have your Bibles open. Look at John 21. John says, afterward, and that's two Greek words. The New Testament's written in Greek. He basically doesn't tell us when. He just says, now, after Jesus had appeared to the disciples, they decide to go to Galilee. Now, the Greek text says, They went to the Sea of Tiberias. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And so now the disciples have made their way there. And according to this story, John says seven of them have been meeting together. And Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. And these six disciples decide to go with him. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. They're pretty much all fishermen. That's been their life. Why did Simon Peter decide to go fishing after the resurrection of Jesus before he was restored as a disciple? I I don't know. You know, sometimes when you find yourself in uncertain circumstances, you return to something that you know. And that's what he knew how to fish. He's a fisherman. So they go fishing. And so his friends go with him. Now, these guys know how to fish. They're not novices. This ain't their first time. They ain't their first rodeo. These men are fishermen. They're professionals. They do it for a living. And so guess what happens to them? They fish all night and catch nothing. Okay, Now, some of you fishermen, y'all can relate to that, right? You know what this, I'm not a fisherman, okay? It's just not my, I mean, I'm just not good at it. I didn't grow up doing it. In fact, a friend of ours owns a restaurant. He started here in Arlington called The Flying Fish. I don't know if you know The Flying Fish downtown. He called me and Cindy one day when he was getting ready to open. It. He said, hey, I need you and Cindy to run down to the restaurant. I need to take a picture. I said, why do you need to take my picture at your restaurant? He said, just, just go down there. So we went, and we didn't know what we were doing. So this lady was interviewing me, and she said, well, we're going to put your picture on the wall. Where's your favorite place to fish? I said, uh, Tom Thumb, I mean, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> she looked at me kind of funny. She said, I mean, where's your favorite place to fish? I said, uh, Tom Thumb, because I don't fish. So today, my picture is hanging in the flying fish, and if you look at it, it says favorite fishing spot, Tom Thumb. I'm just not a fisherman, okay? Um, so I went fishing a little bit as a kid, and Uh, Fishing is just not my thing. That's just not what I know how to do. Well, these guys know how to fish, okay? It's their thing. But they fish all night. Did you catch this? And caught nothing. So they finish the evening, and it's just daybreak, and there's a guy standing on the shore. And he says, hey, guys, y'all caught anything? No, no. And then if y'all ever notice this, everybody's an expert. Have y'all ever noticed that? <laughs> it, 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 everybody knows more about what you're doing than you do. There's always some, I don't care what profession you're in, somebody has an opinion. And this guy, who is this guy? He's just standing over on the shore and he says, you know what, why don't, y'all, uh, why don't y'all put your net over on this side of the boat? Huh. Okay. And they do, and all of a sudden... The net's full. And John says, that's Jesus. Peter, who thinks he can walk on water. I, I don't know how, you know, Peter, he just jumps out of the boat, right? I mean, he, it's just Simon Peter's kind of who he is. He swims in, and um, the rest of them get there. And when he gets there, Jesus already has fish on the fire. He's already been fishing. Now, I don't know. You might have been cheating for Jesus to fish. I don't know how y'all view all of that. But regardless, he's got fish on the fire And he says, bring some more of the fish. So Simon Peter goes back to the boat. They get the fish. And isn't it interesting, y'all? Did y'all notice this? Um, Look at verse 11. So Simon Peter climbs back in the boat. They drag the net ashore. It's full of large fish. 153. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Now, first of all, that lets you know John's a fisherman because nobody else but a fisherman would put how many fish they caught, right? I mean, that's, you know how fishermen are. It's kind of like asking a golfer, what'd you shoot? Mm. You know, we're go- If it's good, we'll tell you. If it's not, we'll go, mm, mm. 153. Isn't that fascinating? So here's what I would say. I want to stop there for just a second. Why in the world would John say 153 fish? Why would he tell us that in the Bible? Well, As you might imagine, scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Here's what I would say in general. John 21, John is laying out two missions of the church. One of them is the apostolic mission to take the gospel to the world, fish. The other one is to shepherd the people of God. Jesus was a good shepherd. He restores Peter, and then he challenges Peter to be a shepherd to the flock of God. So the two-pronged calling of the church, take the gospel to the world and shepherd the people of God, are found right here on this page in our Bibles with these two stories. And so there's a lot more going on than just a fishing story because here's the thing. Jesus called these men to be fishers of men. He called them beyond their profession, which was to be fishermen, he pointed them to something greater, and he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So that's who these men are, and this story is told in that context. So on the one hand, they had a successful fishing venture. That's true. They, they, they caught 153 fish. But on the other hand, there's something else going on here, and scholars have looked at this, as you might imagine, for hundreds of years. You go all the way back to the early New Testament theologians and they wrote about this particular story and they tried to figure out what does the 153 mean? The the current consensus, which I agree with, actually teaches this. We believe this number is not a random number. We think it's actually connected to something prophetic in the Old Testament. And let me just show you what I think it means. In Ezekiel... Chapter 47, God gave the prophet Ezekiel an interesting vision, a fishing vision. And so he challenges Israel to think about their responsibility and he paints a picture of sometime in the future beginning around verse eight or nine of chapter 47 of Ezekiel about fishing. And then you come to verse 10 of Ezekiel 47 and here's what the Bible says. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engliam, and there will be places for spreading nets, and the fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, there's this picture in the future of where there's going to be this giant fishing expedition, and it will go from Engedi to Engliam. Here's what's interesting about that, y'all. In Hebrew, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. In Hebrew, there are no numbers per se. Letters stand for numbers. And so if you look at the word in Gedi and you were to add up the numerical value of those Hebrew letters, it comes to 17. If you add up the numerical value of in it comes to 153. Here's what's interesting about the number 17. If you'll add one plus two plus three plus four, plus five, plus six, plus seven, da-da-da-da-da, plus 17, guess what you get? 153. 153 and 17 are found in this ancient text. And it's a picture of God's people fishing and catching all kinds of fish. And now here we are years later. Are y'all still with me? So here we are years later, and John tells a story of how the disciples are fishing, and they catch 153 fish. New Testament interpreters typically say this. In other words, what John is saying is, we're going to send you out, this is the message from Jesus, my disciples, I'm gonna show you where to fish, and you're gonna catch all the fish. And you're gonna bring them in, and when it's all done, we'll be done. So in other words, It seems to me that John is telling a story that is describing the apostolic mission of the church to take the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, all kind of fish, and one day they're all gonna be gathered in, the net won't be torn, and we will be done. And so it's a beautiful, powerful, parabolic story. So what do I learn from it? Well, a number of things I would say. Jesus didn't just call the disciples to be fishers of men. He called you and me to be fishers of men. And I want you to see... A couple things in this story. The disciples catch fish whenever they listen to Jesus, and he shows them where to fish. So, that's the first thing. So, when you and I start thinking about evangelism and fulfilling our apostolic mission, we always start with asking Jesus, what do you want us to do? Show us. Show us where the fish are. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can bear much fruit. So, we start. Lord, where are you at work? Show us. Second thing, then you fish. Now, don't y'all think about fishing. These people fished a certain way, and I believe there's a lesson for us. When you and I think of fishing, how do we fish? How do we do it? We do it as individuals, right? Now we fish like this, right? You, you right? Unless you're in Oklahoma. Now, I pastored a church in Oklahoma, a little country church, and I went fishing with some of them. And let me just tell you right now, you don't take a fishing pole. Y'all ever done this? It's called grabbling, noodling. Here's what you do. I only went one time. You go out in the Red River, and the catfish dig these little, little holes under the rocks, and they face upstream and just let food wash into their mouth. What these Oklahoma boys do is they go out in the Red River, and they just start... Like that, because you can't see anything, because it's, you know. And they find a catfish who's burrowed a hole, and they go in and put their hand in the mouth of that catfish. Catfish's teeth are offset, if you know what I mean. And you just pull that catfish out, and then they grab it, grablin', they grab it and rescue it. I mean, take it. (laughs) And eat it. So I go, and uh, oh, Greg Parker on there for a big old boy, big country boy. And Greg said, Pastor, we got you one. We got him under It's an easy one. This is a good one to learn on. I said, I ain't interested in learning. He said, But you need, you need this is good for you. Man up. So I go down underwater, y'all, and I'm, I'm, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I came back up, and Greg said, Seriously, let me go get it. He goes down, y'all, he gets that catfish, and it just eats his hand up. And I just went, Oh, this is a good one to learn on. Awesome. And, uh, <laughs> So I'm not talking about that kind of fishing. We fish like this, okay, individually. I want you to notice that's not how they fished. The fishermen in the first century, they don't fish by themselves. That's not how it works. Here's what they do. They have a big net, and uh, they take this big net, and they go to where they think the school of the fish are, and they drop that net into the water. It's open at the top. It's like a big circle. has weights on the bottom of it. And they capture a school of fish. That's one guy's job, get that net out in the water. Then the fishermen take the casting nets and they throw the casting nets, which are also weighted, into that pool and they drag the fish up. And you have to do it all together. You can't do it by yourself because it won't work. So I want y'all to think about that with me. Here's what I think we've done in evangelism in America. I think we have reduced it to only one-on-one conversations. And I think we're missing something here. There's nothing wrong with one-on-one conversations. They can be very powerful. But what I would tell you is I think what we should be thinking about is how to do this together. So I want y'all to think about that with me this morning. Many of y'all in this room are in a Sunday school class. You're in a small group. What if y'all decided to start fishing together? What if y'all decided, let's ask the Lord, where do you want us to fish? Who should we be going after? Instead of just one-on-one, the one-on-one can happen, but let it happen in the context of a group of you. Because we're all gifted differently. And here's the excuse that we use about evangelism. You know, it's not much of an evangelist. I mean, somebody else needs to do that. No, everybody's been called to fish. You may be the person that needs to go out and just help find them. You're the one that drops that first net. You may have somebody else who's better at casting than you are. Well, the point is, what if every Sunday school class in our church right now said, okay, who do we need to reach? Lord Jesus, show us, where, where are the fish? that we're supposed to be responsible for? Where do you want us to go? And then, which one of us is best at this? Which one is the support team? Which one are the folks who can, who can pray effectively? Who's, who's got that sense of giftedness in conversation? In other words, if we were to all group up and do this together, can you imagine how successful we might be? I just wanna challenge you to think together in a group. What, how can you use our group? Who do we all know? Where are you at work? What are we sensing? How might you use us? So we're going into December. December's right in front of us. Now, Christmas season, holiday seasons, are times when people are thinking about spiritual things. They just are in America. So December the 9th, we're going to have a fun day out on the North Lawn for young families, grandparents, parents, all kinds of fun things. There's going to be a downtown festival. So in all of y'all Sunday school groups, what if y'all already get together and say, well, who should we invite to that? Who, who, who do we know that might enjoy something like this? Maybe they're unchurched. Who among us needs to be a part of that process? Who can we bring with us? December the 10th, that Sunday night at five o'clock, we're gonna have a Christmas musical here in this sanctuary. A lot of people love to go hear Christmas music. They just do, they enjoy it. Well, guess what? In this musical this year, you're gonna hear the gospel proclaimed very clearly. So Sunday school class, who might y'all wanna bring to that and invite them to come with you? Uh, December 17th, Adventure which is a young family event on our campus. We're gonna have a petting zoo, a live nativity, all kind of activities for children. Uh, Cindy and I are gonna tell the Christmas story to the little ones. Um, What a great opportunity for kids to come and families to come. Who all should be invited? Who do y'all know in your group? How could y'all throw a big net and then say, okay, you know what, Let's, let's, let's address this group of people. Christmas Eve, once again, another somewhat of a nostalgic night in our culture. But a wonderful opportunity to invite people to come with them. What are you inviting them to? Well, here's what I would say. You're inviting them, first of all, to a rich and meaningful life that you've found in Jesus. Second, you're inviting them to an opportunity to be a part of the corporate reality, the body of Christ. Third, you're inviting them to an opportunity to actually be meaningfully and purposefully used by God in his grand mission. And fourth, you're inviting them to eternal life. (laughs) Well, those are all really good things. That's why it's such good news. So I want to encourage y'all. Find your group and let's start fishing together and quit feeling like it's just your own job to do it all by yourself. Let's figure out ways to communicate with one another in our group, whatever that group is. And let's see how God might use us to reach more people. So with that said, one other thing this morning. As we close out this conversation on missiology, what about our call as a church? This is probably how I'd word it. Our missiology here at First Baptist is holistic in nature. We're guided by our beliefs. We're committed to live godly lives in any context, Africa, Arlington, Europe, wherever. We're humbled to serve the needs of people. We're then honored to shepherd God's flock. And we believe we're called to share the good news with our world. That to me summarizes what missions is all about. And so here's how it works: we do this together in small groups. We 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 find our way, we embrace the gospel ourselves, and then we get connected to small groups within the church, and we follow Jesus to the nations. We find community together as a church family, and then as a church, we proclaim the gospel to our community. And we do that in many ways. We meet people's needs. We share the good news of Jesus with them. Um, When you think about our work globally, I don't know if y'all have had a chance to look at this brochure that Ashley put together for us. What's our global work like? Well, in this last year, according to the research we've done and the statistics Ashley's been able to compile, your global work, your church, you've sent 182 people to the world, to the nations. Volunteer missions, People who actually live on the field. This last year, 1,259 people through those connections became Christians. 1,259 baptisms, professions of faith. 3,899 people trained. 16,362 people engaged with the gospel. 20,928 people impacted by the Jesus Way globally through the ministries of our church. That's what you're a part of at this church. Can we just say praise God? amazing, really. What about locally? Well, you know, locally, our church has felt called not to just share the gospel. We do that, but we also want to meet people's needs. Do you know that our church is the single biggest supporter of Mission Arlington? Our church gives over $338,000 out of our budget to Mission Arlington every year, not counting our world mission offering and other things. Tilly sent me this note, Thursday, Mission Arlington started by our church, supported by our church, and many of you were a part of it. We gave Thanksgiving meals to 6,593 families. That's 28,099 people, and there were 4,668 volunteers that served on Thanksgiving Day. Think about that. Praise God. That's your church at work together with others because we fish together, remember? That's how it works. You know, for me, I want you to know as a pastor, back in 2005 or so, I really began to search for partners in mission, because I felt like things had changed so much in my denomination that I no longer felt at home. And so we started Restore Hope in 2006, a community of churches trying to take the gospel to the world. I still remained unsettled for a long time, In 2016, I, along with a couple other people, invited some folks to come to Nashville, Tennessee to meet and have a conversation about what can we do missionally, because I no longer felt at home in my national denomination. And so a group of us from Texas and Virginia met in 2016, seven years ago. We've been meeting ever since, and that group has grown. It's now a multi-denominational group of people. They're literally from all over North America. Pastors, mission leaders, seminary presidents. And we have decided to launch a new missional movement called Ascent. It's based upon the Psalms of Ascent and it's based upon our responsibility after the ascension of Jesus to take the gospel to the world. And we've adopted the calling to re-evangelize North America. We've chosen a leader for our movement. I'm the chairman of our steering council and our executive committee. And we're beginning our work And we want to re-evangelize North America because we believe if we re-evangelize North America and revitalize the Western church, the Western church will take its place in the full global body of Christ and we'll help evangelize the whole world. And I'm very excited about it. I'm grateful for it. But I'm doing it together with multiple leaders from across North America. So you as a church member, you as an individual church member, you're a part of all of it. And I love that for you. The things that I've talked about this morning Those are your missions and your mission stories. This is your missions life. We're trying to reach this community holistically, connecting together to have a global impact. So when you become a part of this church, what I want you to know is we need you. We need you to be a part of it because we're doing this together. Without you, we're diminished. And your efforts are pulled together and we work together for the glory of God And we have felt the leadership of the Spirit of God moving into next year. Our theme for 2024 is together. And we're going to explore what it means to be together as the people of God. And I'm so excited about it. And I want you to participate fully in it. We've decided that we have multiple foundational responsibilities as a church. We're embracing all of them. We're highlighting three of them next year, reaching young adults, young families, reaching new people, And using this campus the best way we know how to be stewards in this downtown community. Those are our three priorities for next year. And you are a part of that. And I want to thank you for it. And I want to invite you into it more fully than you've ever been. So how do you participate? Well, you pray. You come. You give. You know, financially. When you give financially to the budget of this church, you are supporting the entire breadth of our work the vision, the vitality of ministry here in this downtown community. And what we've chosen to do is a big task. It's a huge vision. It's bigger than any one of us. And, it's, and it costs for us to do it. I get it. It's huge. As a matter of fact, right now, we're in the, in the uh, final um, part of this year. We're $600,000 behind our giving goal right now. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, to be faithful in your giving as we come to this year end because we believe this work is important. And I realize it's sacrificial, but it's worthy effort. It's worthy of our sacrifice, and I want us to be faithful to it. And then the World Mission Offering goes to support so much else of what we do. So the point is, you and me in this church, what do we do? Well, some of us go. Some of us do. Some of us go live somewhere else. We've got people living in other places, but most of us are here And we send and we bless and we give and we humbly serve each other and we love each other and we shepherd one another and we share the gospel because we're all sent to some degree. In fact, we're supposed to live that way. That's our challenge, to live sent. Well, let's you and I play our role in this season in the life of this church. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, I wanna thank you for the calling to be a part of a local congregation. In fact, for the calling, the invitation, the privilege of being a part of this congregation. And I would just say, first of all, thank you. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. But Lord, may we live well into the responsibility that comes from being a part of a local church. And we trust, Lord, that the efforts that we are engaged in will continue to have your blessing And we ask you, Lord, show us where to fish. Show us where to cast our nets. And then give us the courage and the boldness to do it for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.